This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mowell, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Oz Guinness completed his undergraduate degree at the University of London and his Doctor of Philosophy in the Social Sciences from Oxford University. Since coming to the United States in 1984, he has been a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies, guest scholar and visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution, and he has served as executive director of the Williamsburg Charter Foundation. Later, he served as founder and senior fellow of the Trinity Forum, also as senior fellow at the East-West Institute in New York City. He is the author or editor of over 30 books. His latest work is A Free People's Suicide, Sustainable Freedom, and the American Future. Oz, in terms of your new book, A Free People's Suicide, Sustainable Freedom and the American Future, why this book? Why now? Well, it could have come out any time, really, in the last 10 years. But I think freedom is the central issue of today because many of the chaotic things that are happening in this country are because of an excessive libertarian freedom. And I think also there's a huge amount of talk about sustainability, but no one asks about sustainable freedom. So it's a very, very important issue. It's a sort of issue behind a lot of the other issues, but it's one I think that Christians and others need to look at much more carefully. You make the point over and over again, especially in the early chapters of your book, that Americans, perhaps more than uh, than, than previous civilizations that have been greatly concerned about freedom, uh, seem to have very little concern for the, the issue of freedom sustainability. And Americans tend to take it for granted, as if uh, freedom is just a gift that is uh, that is possessed and can't be lost. From your historical perspective, that's hardly the case. Well, exactly. I mean, it's, it's understandable, but rather foolish. In other words, if you take the three tasks that the framers and the founders set about, winning freedom is the one we all celebrate. That's the revolution, and everyone celebrates that. Ordering freedom, which is the Constitution, people, you know, pass, uh, doff their caps to it, but uh, they don't spend that much time on that one. But the third one, the framers were incredibly aware of, we ignore altogether, which is how do you sustain freedom? Because the fact is, freedom never, ever lasts. You could say... In in a world that's fallen, the presence of sin and the passing of time, nothing lasts forever, and especially freedom. Freedom has a habit of undermining itself. And so not to take notice of freedom today and how to sustain it is incredibly foolish. You demonstrate the fact that empires come and empires go, and uh, as a matter of fact, I would say you have a rather unique credibility to that, not only in the fact that you are a scholar of history and of uh, sociology, but also because you uh, you really have lived at least uh, the end of one empire in, in terms of your own biography, and uh, whether it's Tennyson or, uh, or, frankly, the Old Testament prophets – it has always been clear that everything that is human is temporal and nothing that is in terms of human endeavor will last. Why is it hard for Americans to come to terms with that? Well, I think everyone in that time thinks that whatever system they have is going to last forever. But as you say, I remember as a teenager, I heard Winston Churchill saying he was not elected to preside as prime minister over the decline of the British Empire. But of course, that's exactly what he did. And people tend to go into these periods with extraordinary denial. As you can see today, the president saying blithely, the best is yet to be. Well, you've got to say how that's so. 
and it's got to be based on a real analysis of America's problems today and the things that have to be solved practically if there's to be a good future, let alone the best is yet to be. Early on in your book, you make the case, and I read this to you, finally, freedom always faces a fundamental moral challenge. Freedom requires order and therefore restraint. Yet the only restraint that does not contradict freedom is self-restraint, which is the very thing that freedom undermines when it flourishes. That's a rather stark, I think, in one sense, irrefutable statement, but it could lead to a form of inherent pessimism about the prospects of freedom. Well, it should at least lead to vigilism, because that's the paradox of freedom, that the greatest enemy to freedom is freedom. And so you should have the realism that, say, some of the early... Uh, thinkers like Cicero and Polybius or more recent people like Montesquieu and Tocqueville, they were terribly aware of what it took, and so were the founders. But it's crazy that modern Americans don't think of that. And if you look around America today, we have varieties of libertarianism which are absolutely unsustainable, and they're going to produce a harvest of cultural and social consequences in the family and many, many other areas, which are going to lead to the undoing of America. And to me, that's very sad. Even Christians are not really addressing the deep issues as they should. Now, in terms of that kind of statement, I I would suggest you make it even more pointedly a few pages later when you say there's no question about the earlier menace of the Nazis and the communists and now Islamic extremists. But in the end, the ultimate threat to the American Republic will be Americans. The problem is not wolves at the door, but termites in the floor. Uh, rather poetic, I would, uh, I would credit here. But uh, you do make the point that freedom is freedom's greatest enemy, and America's greatest enemy is Americans. That's a very stark statement. Well, I think the whole of history is there to back us up. And you can see that, again, if you read the Greek classics, they understood this incredibly well. But my strongest statement of that comes from Abraham Lincoln who many people idolize, rightly, but they don't actually listen to in terms of the content of a lot of his speeches. And I find, you know, his speech in Missouri, um, sorry, in Springfield, Illinois, when he was 28, he'd only been in town just a few months. The Lyceum uh, speech. 28, the Lyceum speech. He, he chose as his topic for the day the perpetuation of our institutions. How are we doing 50 years on? You know, my son is 30. I can't imagine anyone of his generation asked to address some club, say, in New York where he lives. Would they take that topic? It's it's remarkable that someone so young could have such an incredibly mature view of the transience of societies and civilizations and so on. I mean, I had the privilege this summer of giving the talk behind the book in front of the Thomas Cole paintings. You know the Cole paintings? I certainly do. Of course, of it course of empire. Well, it was a cocktail party it was put on down in South Carolina and in in in, um, in the in Columbia, and people had seen all the paintings which are there this summer. And the chairman got up rather soberly and he said, "Now we'll have the talk. We're somewhere between number three and number four. And if anyone looks them up online, Absolutely. they'll see what he meant. And that's sobering, but people don't take that seriously." Well, at least uh, the vast majority, it seems, uh, do not take that very seriously. No, I know. There Obviously, have always been like voices. You, you're, addressing, you're addressing issues daily with a great realism and truth and so on. But, I mean, the general public, there's still, you know, I go to Europe, and, and Europe, which is worse, is better in one way. There are very few illusions, and there's very little complacency. But in this country, there's still a huge amount of complacency and a huge amount of illusions. 
and we've got to burn through those from the president downwards to get people addressing the real State of the Union. Well, the first thing I thought when I read your book is that uh, only Os Guinness could have written this and, and written it the way that it's written. And uh, I, I want to credit you with something that, uh, that, that came to me as I was reading this. Uh, I am captivated by so many of the same sources and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm thankful to say I, we read the same bibliography. But you have an amazing gift, and a part of this is due to your biography and to your background training in, in distilling all of this. I want to tell you, just to bring up something from your past, I think one of the most important projects you were ever involved in is something from the early 80s uh, that was done when you were a part of Oxford Analytica looking at the United States. You've had a long interest in this, and, and reading your book last night again led me to want to go back. I pulled out that volume. And uh, and so many of the same concerns are there, but many of the things that were foreseen in 1986, almost 30 years ago, are not only foreseeable now, they're already in our past. In other words, if anything, America and this process seems to have accelerated from what even you and your colleagues could have seen back there in the 1980s. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Now, it's funny, when I did that volume, I was the only one in the team, apart from the chairman, who's a friend and a fine person of faith, who took religion seriously. And when we did that, we came over here, and we were at the top of the American Express building, I think it was in New York, I think it was American Express, and the first question after our presentation, could there be a religious renewal and a renewal of America? And the Oxford dons who are economists and politicians and so on were stunned that someone would ask a question like that, because they are completely tone deaf. They don't even put factors like faith into the whole issue. And, of course, many of your American leaders today are the same. They're tone deaf, so they, they miss the deepest essential issues, without which there'll be no real analysis, and without which there'll certainly be no solution to America's problems. Well, that leads me even deeper into uh, your argument, and, and I want to jump to the middle of your book where you set forth what you call the golden triangle of freedom. I think one of the most difficult challenges we face is in helping people to understand that freedom requires certain preconditions and, uh, and certain mm-hmm. sustainable supports without which uh, freedom not only can't last, but it can often fall into something even worse than the state before. And, uh, and so whether you're looking at... Uh, at, at some of the European examples more recently, uh, or certainly uh, looking at Rome, uh, or for that matter, looking at every empire that came before, it, its demise is often truly catastrophic. But just focusing on your argument what, about what facilitates or, or is required for freedom, you make three points. You say freedom requires virtue, virtue requires faith, and faith requires freedom. That's a, a circular argument of a, of a sort, but one that makes a great deal of sense. That's one of the most original parts of the American founding, and people ignore it. It's a sort of $800, 800-pound gorilla, rather, in the room, and it's there. It's in all the frame of speeches, uh, you know, right across the board, and yet people somehow ignore it. And I say to people when I challenge them, you know, by all means, dismiss the frame of solution. It happens to be one of the most daring solutions to try to sustain freedom in all history, but by all means, neglect it, ignore it if you want, but only if you put something better in its place. But people don't, so they throw that out, and they put nothing in its place, and obviously the only consequence is then the possibility of decline. But the framers' answer, I think, is absolutely brilliant, set over against the Greeks and the Romans, and uh, certainly against the moderns too. When you make this first point that freedom requires virtue, you go back to the fact that Freedom requires the moral 
commitment to self-restraint, the only kind of restraint that works in a free society. But the absence of self-restraint means that the very freedom that is claimed on that basis is undermined by the, the – you don't argue this – but the anarchy that basically follows, the licentiousness, uh, the extreme libertarianism you're talking about, that in the name of freedom actually destroys the, the very freedom that is, uh, is facilitated by self-restraint. When, when you talk about freedom requiring virtue, the founders of, of this nation certainly understood that. Mm-hmm, exactly, and, and so do many of the great philosophers. I was at Oxford uh, with Isaiah Berlin, the great Jewish philosopher who'd come out of the Soviet Union and so on, and he was famous for his distinction between negative freedom, freedom from, and positive freedom, freedom to be or freedom for. And obviously, speaking, you and I are Christians, our Lord's freedom was a positive freedom. There's freedom from, freedom from sin and all the forms of oppression, but freedom to be, freedom for, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so Christians have a very distinctively different view of freedom from the loose, permissive, licentious libertarianism, do-what-you-like kind of freedom, that's uh, running amok through American culture today. I want so to... we do have the answer. The trouble is many Christians are rather like the modern secular forms of freedom. I want to come back to Isaiah Berlin in just a moment. And by the way, I appreciated your use of his distinction between negative and po- positive freedom. But I also appreciated the fact that you qualified that by saying that as useful as that dichotomy is, actually the one is, is implicit in the other. It's, it, it's in, in some sense, a, if, you, if you press it too far, it becomes a an unhelpful kind of dualism. And, and with Berlin, you also have the hedgehog and the fox. So you know, he, he evidently loved dualisms. But as, as useful yeah. as that is, you really can't have positive freedom without some negative freedom. No, it, obviously, it, it, the Christian view of freedom is comprehensive and deeply balanced. So we begin with freedom from. And so whether it's external chains like, say, human slavery today, or whether it's internal things like the grip and addiction of sin. And it's odd that in a country of so much freedom, you've never had more people in addictions today. So Christians do believe solidly in freedom from negative things, and above all, from sin. But certainly the glory of Christian freedom is the freedom for and the freedom to be. We know the way of Jesus. And it's odd that the truth shall set you free is probably the most popular, widespread motto in university walls across the world. And yet hardly anyone relates it to its real meaning, and certainly today that idea is just meaningless. In terms of your point that freedom requires virtue, you document very well the fact that the founders of the American experiment were very clear about the fact that virtue was required, and specific virtues they were glad to uh, enunciate, to articulate, to uh, to make very clear were required, self-restraint at the first of those, a, a, a recognition of rightful authority, uh, a respect for, for the, the requisite amount of social order required for community, uh, a recognition of human dignity, uh, certainly inherent in what it would mean to recognize one another as something more than what the French revolutionaries merely called each other when they said citizens. But Americans believed that we were far more than mere citizens. We, we were actually uh, human beings made in the image of God. And so all those virtues were implicit and explicit in the American founding. And above all, the the, the one about character, because uh, you can see there the constant stress on character, or someone like Washington who demonstrated it rather than talking about it. But the difference today, I remember when 
Clinton was impeached, President Clinton was impeached, that letter by various scholars to the New York Times, character didn't matter. In the modern world, what matters is competence. And you can see that again and again. It's not integrity in business, it's compliance and so on. Well, you've seen an undermining of virtue. Now, of course, even the term virtue today has got a goody-goody sort of connotation, whereas for the framers, it was rooted in courage and included all the things like honesty, loyalty, patriotism, character, and so on, which are necessary for a thriving society. So we need to be unashamed in recovering these things because they're vital for business, they're vital for journalism, they're vital for public life, and so on. It's interesting that you mentioned the Clinton scandals because uh, many Americans alive today are certainly coming into young adulthood do not even remember that as an historical occurrence. But I was constantly in the media during those weeks, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I remember a debate I had on national television with a liberal theologian who simply said, this is another illustration of the fact that human beings can't draw moral judgments, that d- judgmentalism is, is wrong, and that character is simply an out-of-date issue. And so I just turned to him and I said, do you advise people to hire child molesters as babysitters? And uh, he said, well, of course not. That would be insane. I said, well, I know that. I just don't think you know that, or at least at least it's incompatible with your statement. But I think what many people don't recognize, and, and at, at reading this point of your book, I, I, was, I was very interested in, and when I read books, I often think, okay, I'd like to get two or three people in a room. Uh, the historian Gordon Wood, I thought would be a very interesting uh, conversation partner with you there, because uh, as you may know, Gordon Wood is arguing – Uh, Quite interestingly, that when you look at the founding figures of the American experiment, their definition of character was inherently public. It's not to say they had no concern for private virtue, but they were very concerned that the republic could only endure if if its leaders demonstrated a very public commitment to public virtues. And he uses George Washington himself as as the greatest example of that, saying that George Washington didn't claim to be inherently better than his peers, only morally superior in terms of his public conduct. And, you know, I think we live in a world in which that's entirely escaped the the, the understanding of people. So people say now, well, nobody's perfect. Well, George Washington knew that no one was perfect and starting with himself. But it's still very necessary to uphold public virtue. No, you're exactly right. Uh, not many years ago, I was at Yale, and a student was arguing that it's worse to judge evil than to do evil. And that's just typical of the sort of overspill of the recent postmodernism that has undermined the possibility of making genuine moral judgments. And I'm afraid that's creeping and going further, which is absolutely disastrous. But we need to, you know, as Christians, not just lament the darkness, but point out we're talking about public life today, but we could take journalism or business, and things as simple as trust uh, and things like that are absolutely vital to the world of international business or to journalism. How do we trust journalism is different from rumors. Unless you have a strong view of truth and there's some measure of trust, well, above all, that happens with presidents and so on. So uh, I think we as followers of Christ should be unashamed in moving out. We're the great defenders of human dignity, of reason, uh, of character, and of leadership, and so on. And uh, it's a great moment as the culture goes crazily down all sorts of other directions. Well, we're talking about this with your second point in terms of this triangle of uh, virtues and uh, foundational issues necessary for freedom. You make the point that virtue requires faith. And you said that trust, for instance, is no longer even a shared moral category. 
Uh, I would come back and say that uh, even at a more fundamental level, the issue of truth is no longer a shared intellectual category. No, exactly. And you can't have trust without truth, because you're both referring to the same thing. If you don't want the truth of it, you've got nothing really to put your confidence in. But obviously, for the, for the founders, it was a simple matter of fact that if you asked why virtue, in other words, what inspired it? What did virtue actually mean? Who spelled it out? And, and also, what were the sanctions of someone not being virtuous? That Christian view of hell, for instance. Atheism just didn't cut the mustard. It was, it was faith which inspired and gave content and provided sanctions for strong virtue. And so someone like John Adams is absolutely clear, of course, atheists have freedom of conscience. Of course, no doubt about it. But he was far from sanguine, in fact, deeply fearful about a society of atheists because there wasn't sufficient grounding for their virtue. Now, people like Christopher Hitchens would snort today. We're not saying they can't be virtuous themselves, but we're just saying... When atheism, secularism, has been applied to whole societies, well, we look at Germany, we look at Russia and the Soviet Union, we look at China. It doesn't give us great confidence, and so far, Western liberals haven't demonstrated that yet. So it, the framers' point is thoroughly relevant and up-to-date today. Now, to evangelical Christian eyes and ears, listening or, uh, or reading someone like Thomas Jefferson, uh, I, I think it, uh, it's an inconvenient but necessary uh, point of analysis to realize that, that Jefferson was not a believer in, in any sense. Uh, no. it, it, you know, it, it, uh, some form of rationalist, some form of, of deist, depending on how you want to, to define that. But he did believe in the necessity of religion. And, uh, and you go back to the statement that was recorded by Ethan Allen uh, talking mm-hmm. about uh, President Jefferson on his way to church one Sunday and, and someone seeing that. Believing it was entirely incongruous with uh, with Jefferson's heterodox uh, doctrinal understandings, and uh, said to him, "You do not believe a word in it, uh, sir." Said Mr. Jefferson, "No nation has ever existed or been governed without religion, nor can be. The Christian religion is the best religion that has ever been given to man, and I, as chief magistrate of this nation, am bound to give it the sanction of my example." Good morning, sir. End quote. Now, to evangelical ears, that, that's that's hardly a confession of faith, but but to an understanding of of the the requirements of virtue, Thomas Jefferson, we might say even Thomas Jefferson, believed that virtue could not exist independent of theism. No, you're exactly right, Alan. I think you go from the framers, I mean, there's a great range of their faiths, John Jay, Patrick Henry, evangelicals. You know, uh, George Mason, strong Orthodox Anglican. Washington, mostly Orthodox. Jefferson, deist, frankly. Free thinkers, you move across. They were not divided on the point you made. Now, some people will say, well, Jefferson was just hypocritical. And I think over slavery, Mr. Jay was profoundly hypocritical. But when it comes to the point and the question and the story you told, I think he was not so much hypocritical as utilitarian. And he knew very well that the Republic wouldn't survive without religion, providing a grounding to the values. Well, G.K. Chesterton did not quite say this, but he implied this, and that is that uh, to be a sinner is to be a hypocrite. Uh, the only way to avoid hypocrisy is to have no moral or intellectual standards whatsoever. But the question is whether our hypocrisy is fatal uh, to our uh, integrity. And, and, and in that sense, I appreciate the fact that Jefferson was honest uh, about this, which means he wasn't hypocritical. He was simply saying, here's what I believe religion is, uh, is necessary for, and for that reason, I will, I will uphold it. But we're living yeah. in a world now in which there is open hostility to this. You mentioned Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris. 
the new atheists, but but frankly, amongst the intellectual elites uh, who wouldn't dare to even do something so gauche as to write a book about it because that would even concede its importance, that they live in a world that increasingly is so aridly secular that they can't even believe that anyone else believes. That you're absolutely right. But I think, though, Al, if you look at secularism worldwide, we, what we're seeing in the world religiously is an explosion of religion with two great exceptions. The geographical exception is Europe, for historic reasons, reactions to the corrupt state churches. The social exception are the elites in the educated world. And so you're talking about that very important factor. Now, in my experience, um, a lot of the, say, the growth recently of the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, a lot of stuff's written about that. I don't think many of them are actually becoming atheists or secularists. They're just fed up with some of the unwise, ugly, extremist forms of religion that they see in Islam, sometimes sadly on the excesses of the religious right. And that's the reason they don't want to declare themselves religious. But when you look at atheism as it is, it's a very bleak, forlorn faith. And I personally have no fear that in the long run it's a growing concern. It will always be a minority. And sadly, we increase it when the church is so sick that it creates reactions against itself. But atheism by itself, I have no fear for. As Os Guinness makes very clear and candidly represents in this book, there are those on the right who can overclaim in terms of the Christian identity of America's founding generation. But the far more prevalent issue and more dangerous to our social compact are those on the left and others who would seek to deny the essentially biblical and Christian worldview of those who founded this nation and who established a project of freedom and ordered liberty precisely, intentionally, and self-consciously upon an understanding that only makes sense within the larger framework of a biblical worldview. We both bear an intellectual debt to Peter Berger, who has uh, lived long enough, actually, to go back and revisit some of his theories. But, uh, you know, as he has recently revisited the theory of secularization, uh, in which he's played such an important intellectual role, he came back to say that, uh, that, that secularization hasn't happened on the European model in the United States except on the American University campus, where exactly. a, a very European worldview is set in. A- and yet, Berger came back later to say, but do not underestimate what that means because where ideas are generated and where the young are formed, that's where the future takes shape. Do you no, see that exactly as a great right. threat I mean, I think we should, uh, but it seems to me that is a great threat that is often unseen thinking about the future of, of, of American culture. Well, I, I take it as a great challenge, certainly. I mean, I was in Europe last week at a meeting in Brussels, and we had last year's president of the European Parliament speaking openly of faith, and the current chairman, I think, president of the European Commission, equally a strong believer, given an extraordinary philosophical and apologetic speech. Um, so even in Europe... And you, you, you look at what's happening in the European campuses. There is a turning around. And I've, the American campuses, I've been 12 or 15 the last year. I haven't been asked a serious postmodern type of question for maybe five years now. And the new openness and the yearning is quite palpable. So I think we've got a challenge followers of Jesus to go back to our Lord 
make sure the way we're thinking and living is as close to Jesus as we can, and then move out with great courage. This is an extraordinary moment. I'm far from pessimistic. What you're describing accurately is, is a great challenge. But I think it's actually not as profound and deep and worrying as it looks in the first sight. I guess time will tell on that, and you've always been, I will not say optimistic, but hopeful in terms of your yeah. understanding of the possibilities of recovery. And, and, and I, I share the fact that as a, as a Christian, our disposition has to be based in hope. But I think one of the, uh, the, the great achievements of your book, to be honest, is, is how carefully you have dissected the problem. And uh, for instance, I don't know of anyone else who's done exactly what you've done in the latter portion of your book where you identify three different dimensions of relativism that have, uh, have greatly undermined uh, the, uh, the fundamentals of American freedom. You talk about philosophical relativism. I think most of us are quite familiar with that. And, uh, and, and then you go on to, uh, to speak also of consumer relativism, which is something I think most Americans would not even envision. And then third, relational relativism. Let's take those, those in sequence. In terms of philosophical relativism, you just told me that in terms of your engagement on European uh, academic campuses, you're, you're just not meeting that kind of hardline postmodernism. I'll tell you, I think on American campuses, uh, where, where both of us spend a great deal of time, there's still some of that, but I think what we have to face now is more of a soft postmodernism, a, a generation that has grown up with those epistemological and philosophical backgrounds and just doesn't even feel the need to, uh, to make the kind of arguments that Derrida and Foucault and others made. No, you're right. I, I think at the theoretical level, postmodernism is disappearing. But the cultural level is a kind of huge reinforcement of what's left of the uh, the philosophical, and so we're going to have postmodernism for quite a while. But we've got to challenge you very bluntly. In other words, cultures cannot live, they can't even defend themselves on the basis of relativism and all these forms of skepticism. So again, I think we as followers of Jesus are an incredibly strong position, not just because we believe the Christian faith is true, which of course we do, and not just because it's the prime impulse creating the civilization that we live in, but the fact is that in many discussions today, Christians were attacked as being irrational faith heads. We're the last great defenders of reason. We're, we're attacked for all sorts of things. We're the last great defenders of human dignity. That's, I think, one of the current issues. You, you go to Pete Singer with his views of animal species, so animal true. rights, and so on. You go to various people. One of the crises is human dignity. So many in our culture are, are talking rightly about human rights, but over a huge chasm, they have no foundations, no justification for it. We do. And so in many cases, we are the last great defenders of the deepest things that matter to human beings and also matter to our civilization. And we should move out with incredible confidence today. I was in a conversation with, uh, I, I won't even call her a postmodern philosopher, because she's kind of post the post-postmodern. Where, wherever she is now, uh, I'm not sure there's any label for it. But, uh, but she interrupted me at one point to say, you know, she said, I am scared about your confidence in human reason. It scares me. And I thought that was a very amazing statement. I said, you have no idea how little... Yeah. Well, you have no idea how little confidence I have in human reason over against the need, for instance, of revelation. But in terms of what she meant, uh, it was scary to her that she believed that someone would believe that that truth was, first of all, existent, uh, and then that it was knowable and intelligible. And to her, that just implies, and you've heard all this language before, you know, a hegemonistic discourse of totalitarian power mm-hmm. against the oppressed. 
you know, you point out that the founders of this country believed that liberation could only happen on the basis of shared assumptions and, and shared truths. No, you're again, you're absolutely right. But what you're saying is bizarre. And you listen to Richard Dawkins, we're faith heads. We believe against the evidence on no reason at all and all this sort of stuff. But as you say, she's scared in our trust in reason. Now, you rightly say we don't trust in reason alone. It's undergirded by revelation. But it's a good illustration that as the, the discussion goes way out to the far extremes today, it comes back and the Christian faith undergirds so many of the things that are vital to humanity and vital to the future. So again, we've got to give young Christians particularly a great sense of confidence in the gospel and in going out at this particular moment in, in, in the cultural crisis. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was downtown today in Washington, people were lamenting you know, the marriage crisis, and certainly it's in an awful state, and we're losing it for lack of persuasive arguments at many points in the Church. But again, in the long run, we will be seen as the defenders of the more human way to go. Yes, and uh, and quite quickly, I think, in, in terms of that trajectory. And uh, I want to return to that in a moment, but let me let me follow through again your, your threefold mm-hmm. uh, expose of relativism. The first was philosophical. The second is something many Americans don't even recognize as a problem. You identified as consumerist relativism. Talk about that. Well, you think in the world of consumerism, and we need to examine that because it's one of the big shifts that's corrupted capitalism in the 20th century, and too many Christians just support capitalism as if it was Adam Smith unchanged. Consumerism's changed it, and other things have too. But in the consumer world, nothing's right or wrong. There are only choices and preferences. So you think of the famous cafeteria spirituality, you know, in a smirigos board. You pass down the line, you don't like radishes? Well, take, take carrots, you know, this sort of thing. And this comes right down into things like truth and church going. You don't like that music? It's too traditional, too contemporary. Pass on down the line and take something you do like. That preference has undermined authority. Al, I love the way you stand. I try to, too, for authority. But in our American culture, authority, what Carl Bart rightly in this case called binding address of truth, authority is just melted down into preference. And that's deeply shaped by our consumer culture, not by, you know, Kant, Hegel, Nietzsche, or whatever. It's just the consumer culture. There are no rights and wrongs, just choices and preferences. Do you see any real corrective to that? You don't answer the question uh, in the book directly, but in terms of consumerism, it appears to me that uh, this is where the right and the left should have a lot of shared moral concern. And, uh, for instance, I I read Todd Gitlin and other people from the far left, and, and, uh, you know, it's it's the same reason why, you know, conservatives would read Marx's critique, uh, should read, and by that I mean true conservatives, Mm -hmm. uh, should read the critique Uh, of Marx and recognize a great deal of truth in the critique uh, in in terms of the excesses of of capital without any moral accountability. But when when you look at this, America's conservatives generally don't want to talk about this. Very dangerous. I mean, if we get people more like Hebrews 11, enterprising faith, of all the great questions that need to be tackled, one of the top ten is certainly a constructive critique of capitalism. As soon as you say that, people think you're a lefty or a pinko or a Marxist or whatever. But capitalism is almost coming off, it's losing its wheels today. And we as Christians have tremendous stakes in this 
because of our Lord's teaching and the whole biblical teaching. I think we have people who have got the courage. Now, when it comes to consumerism, for instance, you go back to the 1915, 25, 30, that period, the early advertisers were very self-conscious and very open about the fact that their great enemy was what they called the Protestant ethic, Puritanism, Protestantism, and so on. They had to undermine that to get the debt culture going. Well, Christians, we didn't resist it then, and now we're hook, line, and sinker into a consumerist culture, which is actually giving us the culture of addiction and debt and overspending and so on at the national level and the personal level. So we've got to have the courage to tackle these things. I know you do, and certainly I hope I do. Well, just in the last several weeks, several things have brought this to mind. For instance, just before the uh, the last Christmas season here in the United States, uh, a company called Urban Outfitters scandalized many by coming out with a catalog that included all kinds of profanity and uh, and morally objectionable material. And uh, as I dealt with uh, in, a, in a previous conversation, the amazing thing is that the advertising world seemed uniformly to champion this as a brilliant idea. It, it, it accomplished what advertising is supposed to do. It caught the attention of consumers. And uh, and perhaps it reached out, especially as it said, uh, one uh, expert I cited in this had uh, had made the statement, this is a real breakthrough. This is a new way of reaching younger Americans, as, as if that that were a good thing. Well, Al, I'm sure you know Roger Shattuck's The Culture of Transgression. Oh, yes. It's not the title, but something like that. Yes. You know, it, always people want to cross the line, flout the boundaries, defy the conventions, and that's how you sell the new things, and so on and so on. Well, we'll get into the end of that, where you just eventually, as he said, on the one hand, we make evil cool, and on the other hand, we just produce a culture of mediocrity that's spinning its yes. wheels with all sorts of things. And we, we, we've got to say, the emperor has no clothes. You know, Shattuck but we makes, uh, really need Christians who, who, who look at consumerism from top to bottom, analyze it, and then show how we as followers of Jesus have got to live a different way. You know, I also love Shattuck's uh, insight when he says that the people who open the door to these things, when what comes to the door later happens, they take no personal responsibility for it. <laughs> they they do no, not trace right. the trajectory of their own misbehavior and of their own moral shifts in terms of uh, of, of what comes later. The third relativism you talk about, I think, is a very interesting way of getting at uh, the issue of marriage you raised earlier and uh, and larger issues related to human sexuality and even community. You mentioned philosophical relativism, then consumerist relativism, and then you mentioned relational relativism. Well, you can see that all around us today, say, with the marriage issues and the gay issue and so on. You know, thou shalt not judge, do no harm. Do anything with anyone, as long as you're both consenting adults, and that's where we are today. So there are no boundaries at all. And so this is towards the point of real cultural chaos, which will be decadence. You know, Churchill used to say, quoting Alexander the Great, that the Persians of his time, the Persians would always be slaves because they didn't know how to say the word no. And Americans have lost the capacity to say no. I know we've had the, you know, 20 years ago, the Just Say No campaign, but that was pretty ineffective. But you have to have moral categories that are strong in order not to say, in order to be able to say no. And so, you know, today's the gays, tomorrow, tomorrow, polyamory, polygamy, bestiality, incest, you name it. There's no stop to this now because we've lost the capacity to say no. And you can see that relational relativism just running riot today. 
I want to press a couple of questions that certainly came to me in reading the book, and uh, they're all part of, uh, of of the larger question, so what? Uh, and, and you write this largely to a, a Christian audience. I would say the, the book, uh, I think, would be profitable, and I, I would hope even prophetic, read by those who are not Christians, but it's published by University Press. It's, it's, it's likely main readership is going to be persons who have some Christian commitment. What would you say to Christians in the United States is the, is the answer to the question, then so what? And after all of this incredibly powerful analysis, what do we now do? Well, you're raising a somewhat different thing, but um, on the political level, I've mentioned some things that need to be done to see a restoration of the American Republic. But I think that doesn't touch the deepest thing. You've asked a different question. I'm trying to write that, address that in the book I'm writing now. The deepest thing is the Church itself. The fact is that most of the Western Church is in profound cultural captivity to the advanced modern world. And we've got to go back. It sounds like a cliché to let the Church be the Church, to get as close to our Lord, to live the way of His truth and His life as closely as we can. We've got to put our house in order. We are the central problem. And that's nothing to do with the other American citizens. We are the central problem. Liberals, gays, lesbians, many others create huge problems. We've got to say bluntly before the Lord, we are the central problem and address that across the board. In your we book, need revival, yeah. reformation. And uh, sorry, no, and 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 before those things, uh, the the church has to know what the church is and and what the gospel is uh, in order to right. even know its uh, it, its own its own existence. You, you exactly. mentioned in, in terms of the contemporary uh, challenges uh, going from the founding to the contemporary era. And, and in a way that's consistent with some of your previous writings, especially your, your, your call for civility in an earlier book, you say that America, if, if it is to, uh, to create civil space and uh, a cohesive civil society that will, that will be able to sustain freedom in the future, it must, and to use your word, get over its culture warring. How would it do that? Given how deep the divide is between incommensurate and incompatible moral positions in America, how would culture warring come to an end? Well, what do I mean by the warring on the Christian side? Well, take two things, Al. First, I think, and these are both underlying the, uh, the, the, the failure of the Christian right, one is politicization. They trusted politics to do what politics can't do. Politics is downstream. You said that. The rot comes from ideas in the universities, from Hollywood or whatever. Uh, politics is downstream. Politics is vital, but it can't do what it can't do. And as Richard Newhouse used to say, the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. So we, we, we must get out of this constant reliance on politics and seeing every election as the great hope of turning things around, and now we're disappointed, let's try again. The second problem's even worse, and that is, put it in 19th century language, much of Christian activity in the public square has been doing the Lord's work, and it was the Lord's work, say, fighting for life or whatever, the Lord's work, but in the world's way. I mean, our Lord calls all of us to love our enemies. That is, I think, the toughest thing he calls us to in the whole of, uh, the, whole of the Gospels. Wilberforce did that. 
I mean, he always loved his worst enemies, and his attacked him physically as well as his reputation and so on. He's probably the most vilified man in the world at one stage. But you look at the Christian right. It stereotypes, it demonizes, it plays on fear and gets very close to playing on hatred. These are sub-Christian things as tactics for which we'll pay, and they're all part of the culture warring. So you look at the culture warring today, sound bites, blogs, which are barbarian. We've got to forswear all that sort of stuff and stand for the truth with love, demonstrate truth with grace, and so on and so on and so on, as our Lord called us to do, and as the great evangelical leaders like Wilberforce always did. That's what I mean. Well, and I understand that. I, I, I would just have to push back a bit to say that uh, that I don't Please. think that's fair of, of all who would be categorized by any means in terms oh, of the Christian right. Of course not. And uh, unfortunately, we live, we live in a media culture that is drawn to the statements that are most hateful, most uh, reductionistic, uh, most sensationalistic. And, uh, and so, you know, forswearing all of those things and, uh, and being committed to operate, speaking to every other person as a human being made in the image of God, and, and understanding uh, in humility uh, our own fallibility, even as we seek to, uh, to, to, to articulate what we believe to be uh, revealed truth. The, 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 the reality is that we're living in a culture in which we are looking at public policy decisions that are, are being made in a democratic context, uh, republicanism, uh, uh, to be sure, but it's not a direct participation by citizens, but, we, but citizens do have to vote their conscience, including Christian citizens. In other words, I, I, I think we've got to find some way of saying that uh, even though politics is certainly not the first thing, uh, I, I think uh, not only uh, Newhouse but Niebuhr would remind us of that immediately. Uh, but it is uh, nonetheless uh, an inescapable responsibility. I, I think Christians are, are – conservative Christians are rather desperate to find a way. And, and you're right when you talk about the excesses of the Christian right, certainly an almost idolatrous uh, confidence in politics – and then you said something very interesting. You said billing every election is the greatest opportunity to turn this thing around. I'll tell you, I think right now it's actually a very different pattern. I think it's uh, it's every election becoming a matter of obsessive fear for evangelicals that uh, that it's disaster that's imminent. Well, I, I I knew a lot of people in this election, you know, who thought this one could do it. And even three days before, they were coming up to me at church and say, "Watch for the surge, brother." <laughs> you know, and I think they just yeah. watched too much Fox News and lived in a bubble. I mean, sadly, I'd have to say the election was no surprise to me, and that many of us have been saying what happened. America's turned a point culturally, but I basically agree. That's why I said they're doing the Lord's work, fighting for life against abortion, fighting for marriage against the, 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 the corruptions today. You're absolutely right. They're doing the Lord's work. Don't misunderstand me. In, in the Evangelical Manifesto, we put it, Christians should be engaged politically without ever being equated with parties or ideologies. We are Christ's people first and last, and we're never swallowed up by whatever else goes on. No, well, I couldn't if, agree with you more. Yes, We've if, got to be engaged. And if we're going to do you know, a, a, a sophisticated and honest indictment of the political process, the other things we'd have to throw in would include such matters as the fact that many people are in it actually for reasons that are not so apparent. Uh, I mean, there are there are institutions, indeed, there, there's a, a political industrial complex, we might call it, that exists out there mm-hmm. that actually would fall apart and lose its profits if these issues were ever to be resolved. 
and mm-hmm. and, uh, and are building mailing lists uh, by the most sensational kind of arguments because that's how they thrive on on, on continually manipulating and, and propagandizing on these things. So the, the political situation is a is a is a just a disaster. But no, you're right. You know, looking at the founding year of the United States, and uh, a very interesting uh, book was just written in, in which someone spent months and months doing nothing but reading the newspapers of the colonial and revolutionary era. I have to say, in in in, in sobriety, uh, that was a pretty confused and extreme age itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, the election of 1800 was one of the ugliest in all American history. You know, no question. I don't have any. I don't have any illusions about that. There's no baseline that was perfect against which we've fallen away disastrously. It was bad at the beginning. But the point is, the way we're going now is disastrous, and it's at a stage where America will decline unless there's some recovery. That's the point. We're at a different stage. We're not in the early days. Not hardly. In terms of your book, have you been pleased, uh, surprised? Uh, What is your response to the response to the book? Well, on the whole, encouraged. You know, you, you've read some of my books, Al. I'm not exactly a hugely popular writer because I try and address truth, uh, truth pretty realistically. But there has been a good response to this one, although what's intrigued me, I mean, I was asked to give a response to an eminent historian and his review of it who said that I was hopelessly gloomy, unrelievably gloomy, he said. But when I came back, when the book was published, I was invited into Congress, and a veteran congressman said to me, I like your book, but I only have one problem. You're overly optimistic. America doesn't have five years before the problems are irreversible. So I was kind of amused that some people see me as inveterately gloomy and others see it as far too optimistic. But generally, it's been a very good response. Good. Well, just to add to but that not, confusion, you know, I, I recall the fact that I was in a conversation lately with someone else that uh, – and, and we've been reading many of the same books and many of us find ourselves in conversations like that. And, uh, and my friend said, you know, I think how I read a book has something to do with the, uh, the year in which I read it. I said, I have a feeling it has a lot to do with the day or the hour in which, in which you may actually right. have been reading it. So I, I think, uh, you yeah. know, certain persons – I could find reasons for both pessimism and optimism in your book. But again, uh, I I recall the fact that as Augustine in his own way made very clear, neither are alternatives for the Christian. The Christian lives in in humble hope. Exactly. I call it realism with hope. Exactly. You mentioned Augustine. My conviction, Al, is that just as he had that awesome responsibility of living at the very end of 800 years of Roman dominance, and he witnessed the fall of Carthage and heard of the fall of Rome, you know, so we are at the end of 500 years of Western dominance, you know, relatively and maybe absolutely. And so we're at a very important moment for followers of Jesus. And I think we've got to be aware of all the factors creating this hour. And I thank God for you. With people like Chuck Colson going, you're one of the few voices that's courageous and clear and holds to the full authority of Jesus and the Scriptures and so on. With there were more voices like yours, but... It isn't just culture warring. We're at an extraordinary age in history. So true. We've got to move out with that humble hope you mentioned. Well, let me give you a word of encouragement. I appreciate the very kind words you just said, but I have to tell you the great encouragement to me is that there's a generation of young Christians coming who uh, have been burned by all the acids of modernity and uh, and by all the relativisms you mentioned. Uh, many of them uh, bear all the scars in their own young lives of uh, of all of those uh, of all those behaviors and thought patterns, 
but they have come to an unswerving allegiance to the gospel of Christ and uh, to the authority of God's word, and uh, and they they are ready to live in that kind of humble hope, and uh, and that's a great encouragement to me. No, that's terrific. Are you referring to people like the Gospel Coalition and so on? And uh, yes, and uh, I have to say, quite honestly, I'm, I'm talking about so many of the young students on my campus and 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 everywhere. I, I get to speak all over the the country and in other nations to especially yeah. young ministers. And I have to tell you, in twenty, I've been in this current role for twenty years now, and there is a marked, revolutionary, shocking change in all the right directions. Uh, well, all's a little bit too much, but in terms of these issues, yes, in all the right directions uh, that uh, that give that give with, me hope. With many of the right directions, and I, I agree with you mm-hmm. and what you're referring to. But equal is great sadness that in the millennial generation and the younger people, there is also that drift and defection from the faith. Uh, well, well, there's so no on. doubt. Yes, because in that generation, what's disappeared is what we might call nominalism or cultural Christianity, and so. You really do have a clear distinction between the believers and the unbelievers. But I think what's what's hopeful, and, and especially the sense that you so well depict in your book, is that uh, th- this generation, knowing the issues and holding so firmly to these truths, uh, nonetheless doesn't hate the world and 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 doesn't feel the antipathy of uh, of, for instance, early fundamentalism. Doesn't doesn't live in those Manichaean categories. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I think there's, there's reason for hope in that. They, they've had to learn how to negotiate the culture because otherwise they couldn't come to class and have to take the, uh, the earbuds out of their ears in order to, uh, to listen to a lecture. They, no, li- they right. live in both I'm, worlds. I'm with, I'm with you thoroughly on that. Well, I want to give you a word of encouragement. Uh, I, I think that, uh, that you have one of those very rare gifts, and, and that is both in terms of your, uh, your ability to articulate these things orally, also in terms of your, of your writing uh, you do a very necessary work in in giving intellectual framework, and uh, I, I I think you have an amazing gift to popularize, and I, I don't mean that at just the superficial level, but to to make accessible to a generation, kind of people who read this book, uh, some of the most serious sociological and uh, and philosophical kinds of, and historical kinds of readings, and uh, I never miss one of your books. Uh, my Os Guinness uh, section on the, on the shelf continues to expand, going all the way back to the dust of death and your time with Francis Schaeffer and then through Oxford Analytica to the present. So let me just give you a word of encouragement. Next time you write well, a book, I want to I want to be signed up in advance for the next conversation. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Al. I really appreciate that. Is encouraging. It's often a lonely, you know, furrow to hoe. So that's really encouraging. And let's hope sometime I can come down your way and actually see you. Well, we will have to make that happen. And until then, God bless you, and thank you for joining me today. God bless and keep on. Well, now you know what a conversation with Oz Guinness is like. It's a conversation that ranges across an entire field of intellectual endeavors, And, of course, it's also a conversation that models a very serious and thoughtful way of trying to understand a reality and come to terms with it. There's something else that's modeled in this conversation and in the writings of Os Guinness, and that's a basic Christian humility. There is no triumphalism here. There's a very firm set of Christian convictions, a very firm understanding of Christianity's truth behind all of this. There's also an affirmation of the basic sovereignty of God and historical process that that guides the understanding of why we would not be pessimistic when considering so many of the things that we now face. But Os Guinness also helps us to understand that as Christians, we face a very acute contemporary responsibility. We must avoid, on the one hand, the kind of dangerous politicization 
that has marginalized Christian influence in many sectors of the society. On the other hand, we have to avoid the wringing of the hands in terms of the political process as if we have no responsibility in terms of the public square. We also have to understand that we as Christians engaged in an ongoing conversation, a responsible and civil conversation, have to be very careful with the language we use. And as we show up as people of conviction, those who are very much concerned not to see a free people commit national and societal suicide, we also have to understand that our words have to have staying power. We have to be willing to stand behind them over time. To make arguments we're willing to say and to sustain, to posit in the society and then to stand behind and to represent with our lives and our churches as well as with our arguments. Os Guinness is something of an outsider to the United States, coming with an academic background and a pedigree in Great Britain, but he also comes as one who deeply loves what America represents, and he comes to us as one who, as a Christian, is ready to offer a Christian analysis of what he sees. For that reason and many more, we're indebted to Os Guinness for his book, A Free People's Suicide, and for the entire library of works he has contributed to our intellectual discussion. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Oz Guinness, for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to direct your attention to my new book, The Conviction to Lead, 25 Principles for Leadership That Matters. My concern is to develop effective leaders who have more than mere administrative skill, who develop more than just vision. Leaders need to be able to change the hearts and minds of those they lead. In other words, they must develop the conviction to lead. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.